This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Chris Davidson, uh, head brewer for Wolf's Ridge Brewing in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. We're really excited. It's uh, If you're a reader of Craft Beer and Brewing, you saw that Wolf's Ridge was one of our uh, beers of the year this year. It was the uh, Double Chocolate Rum Barrel Dire Wolf uh, Stout, and that's quite a mouthful. Um, we loved it. It really stood out amongst uh, a, a lineup of incredible beers that we tasted last year for our best in beer issue. Um, of course, uh, Wilson's also won a couple of a few GABF medals, uh, 2019 silver for Daybreak, a 2020 gold medal for Daybreak, a uh, bronze for a rock beer, won some Fobab medals as well. We are going to talk about barrel-aged beers. We're going to talk about uh, barrel-aged sour beers, barrel-aged clean beers. We're going to talk about adding ingredients to beers and how uh, and lighter beers like Daybreak and how uh, you can get a clear and clean coffee expression in uh, an otherwise pale and light beer. Um, I'm excited about this conversation. Before we get started, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D chillers to set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. G&D's micro-channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunities for leaks. Call G and chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is the workhorse of many a brewery as at home in a variety of beer styles. Crisp sources the lowest nitrogen spring barley from farmers in Fife up to Moray during malting high cast moistures and a balance of optimal germination time and temperature results in an even well-modified malt with a rich color and balanced sweet malt flavor, ideally suited to ale brewing. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information on crisp Scottish pale ale malt or call one 800 374 two seven three nine chris talk to me about uh, your background in brewing and uh, give me the uh, the quick story of wolf's ridge how the brewery came to be and uh, how you all have grown to to focus on the beers that you all do yeah definitely um so i think my move into craft beer is a lot like many others um i i really although in some ways not so like i really wasn't much of a beer drinker um, at a young age, um, I really didn't drink a lot of alcohol and, um, I wasn't really drinking until I was 21. I'm really jealous of some of, uh, my team who got into brewing, um, with Wolf's Ridge at the age of like 23, 24. Um, you know, I was over 30 by the time I was, um, like settled into, I had my 30th birthday, um, like two days after getting started at Wolf's Ridge. Um, in any case, I, um, got into tasting beer and reviewing stuff on beer advocate, um, back, you know, before Untap was even a thing and, um, uh, home brewing, um, self-taught. I used to work a second shift job. Uh, and so I couldn't go to club meetings. And so I feel like I missed out a little bit there, but on the other hand, I kind of had to force myself to figure it out alone. Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, 
I really decided I didn't like my day job and eventually um, took the first opening that um, presented itself to me, which was uh, washing kegs at Columbus Brewing Company, who at the time um, there were only like five-ish breweries in Columbus, but they were the biggest and definitely the best, one of the best in the state. Um, they've got a bunch of GABF medals for IPA and whatnot. Um and worked my way up from there. After a couple of years, I um, wanted to go back to my roots of homebrewing and designing my own beers. And so an opportunity presented itself at Wolf's Ridge, who was looking for a head brewer who had, you know, kind of a little bit more of a carte blanche um, role to make recipe changes and, and develop things. So in 2012, 2014, I started at Wolf's Ridge, sorry. And um, they're a family-owned uh, brewery and restaurant, um, and uh, when I started, it was just a 15-barrel brew house with four fermenters, and um, over the years, we grew that into nine, 10, 11 fermenters um, and four bright tanks um, in our original location. Um, we've got a full service restaurant, which is usually rated one of the best restaurants in the city. We beat out like the fine dining fr French restaurant that I proposed to my wife in even. So that's always kind of like nice. Like, oh, I just work there. You know, I get, I get free food once in a while. Um, and, uh, uh, at the end of 2019, uh, we moved into a production facility. And so we're still running both breweries, but we moved our larger tanks to the production facility. And now we're running a three vessel, 30 barrel specific brew house, um, and have, uh, eight 120 barrel fermenters. And then a few smaller ones as well. Um, canning our beer now and whatnot. So that's kind of like the, the rough and dirty of it. That's a nice arc where you got started thinking this is a small restaurant brew pub kind of approach to making a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, varying, you know, creative beers. And the success of that has organically led to this kind of growth onto onto the production side. Were there, um, you know, some key drivers on that production side, the, you know, the beers that, uh, you know, through that kind of restaurant process of making things, trying things out, testing and, uh, you know, and being able to always produce new things that uh, you found um, the audience uh, particularly were drawn to? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that um, in retrospect, I'm most um, pleased or proud of uh, what we've accomplished at Wolf's Ridge all those years being a pub, a pub, uh, the, the breweries in the basement of this hundred year old uh, building, um, they had to cut the floor out just so the tops of the fermenters could kind of stick up a little bit and it's windowed off from the, the seating and the, the restroom, but a uh, uh, restaurant, um, but uh, uh, we were really space constrained and challenged with um, just doing everything from barrel aging to getting pallets of grain or bottles down into that basement, finding a, a forklift that didn't like hit the ceiling and all of that. And um, early on, um, when we added our tap room, which is uh, in the same building technically, but it's a separate room and separate space. Um, uh, I, the, the owners asked me how many tap handles we should put in. And we, at the time had 12 on in the restaurant that were usually full of beer. That was usually all ours. Um, and I decided let's get 20. And that was a lot for, with only four fermenters to try to fill 20 handles with our own beer at all times. But I made that my challenge. And one of the ways we filled them, which is a lot, a lot more common now than I think it was, uh, five, seven years ago was infusing, you know, single kegs of a beer at a time just to fill the tab. And so that led to a ton of experimentation and um, ultimately led to a lot of our most popular beers, um, one of which is Daybreak, um, our coffee vanilla cream ale. That's actually our best selling beer. It outsells our IPA um, by like 30 or 40 percent um, wow. most weeks. 
Um, and it's just a really unique, beautiful beer. Um, the original inspiration for that was uh, Calm Before the Storm by Ballast Point. Um, I was out in San Diego in 2015. I don't even think that beer was in a bottle at that point in time. Um, and I had such a unique experience ordering that there. Um, I, I thought I was ordering a stout, um, when I read the description of the beer and I probably just read it too quickly. Um, and they handed me this golden beer, um, but they recognized me as a brewer. And so they told me it was free. And so I didn't want to send it back. So I'm like, I'll, I'll just drink it, whatever it is. I'll figure it out. I'm sure it's good. And then I realized, no, it was the beer I ordered. It's just golden in color, crystal clear. It's not dark. It's not black. Um, and so I went home and tried to replicate it. And using, you know, without knowing how they did theirs, we found our own way of doing it, which we can talk about. Um, and, uh, you know, since then, it's just a really unique beer that, you know, people aren't familiar with, you know, it, you could call it a golden stout. Um, I don't like using that term because it's not like, to me, it's not a real style, but it's just, you know, it's a golden beer that kind of tastes like a stout. And uh, even people who hate drinking black coffee or coffee with milk like drinking that beer. It's really strange. Um, and so it has a wide appeal. It's uh, it's fun to order at the bar and see people drink for the first time. So, Sure, sure. Um, I agree with you on the whole golden stout thing. There's just something that I don't love about it, even though I understand like principally mm-hmm. describing the beer in terms of flavor rather than ingredient of process can make some sense to people you know Mm -hmm. but uh, but generally the amount of roastiness on this is is relatively low it's there Mm -hmm. you know it's just uh um but when you see you know you got started and you were working on this kind of you know keg infusion thing um on that brew pub scale what did what does that look like um you know on that on that small scale did you have specific small one or two barrel tanks or were you literally putting it into you know i mean corny kegs or something where you can pop it open and and actually dose stuff into it. Yeah. So that's exactly what we were doing. And I know um, a lot of uh, your listeners are home brewers. um, And so obviously I made it work on a professional scale, but this is what also be super easy to do on a home brewing scale. Um, I will say up front um, from a professional level, it can be extremely time consuming. Um, We usually upcharge the, the pints of these infused beers by 50 uh, sense, which isn't a lot, but over the course of a hundred pints, it kind of justifies your labor, but sometimes it didn't. Um, but, uh, it filled the line and people loved it. But, um, we started with, uh, basically at the time, um, I wanted to do cask beer and we didn't have any casks. And so this was my way of finding a way to, um, because at Columbus Brewing Company, they, they were very driven by one or two brands of beer. It was like almost all IPA. And so the only time there was experimentation at that brewery was when they did casks for beer festivals. And so I wanted to emulate that at our bar, but, uh, money was really tight. We weren't, uh, the owners didn't want to buy casks, but there were a bunch of old corny kegs, um, from the owner's homebrewing days in the corner that had never been touched, at least as far as I was aware. And I'm like, well, I can put those to use. And so I used to clean them out, pop the top and throw in a bag of coffee or citrus peel or something and rack the beer on top of it out of a half barrel. Um, and we used to just do one at a time and maybe put it back into a six barrel or something. And as these started selling better and better, I was racking a half barrel into three corny kegs and then doing <laughs> two half barrels at a time. And eventually that got uh, obscene. And so when we had a little bit more money, um, then we're, we're still using these today. Um, they're, uh, Sabco, I think they're called like bright kegs. They're made to be like bright tanks or fermenters for home brewers, but it's a half barrel keg. It's got a little PRV on it. And 
and um, the keg spear is on a four inch tri-clamp. And so it's a really wide opening compared to a corny keg. I think you can even get these in like 20 liter uh, or six barrel size as well. But nevertheless, um, it's, it's a lot of room to put um, stuff in there. And, um, and so, yeah, we'll, you know, maybe toast some coconut and throw that in there. And usually within one to three days, you've got your flavor at the ratios we were going at. And, um, then you just rack it back into a keg and tap it at the bar. Um, the fun thing with that, if you're only doing it for your, for your bar, we're not too worried about refermentation. And so we'll put whole fruit in there and all kinds of things that um, I wouldn't do if I was going to bottle it. Um, we have done for our membership club and some other very small, specific releases, um, infused beer in those, um, those Sabco brights, um, for, uh, like a mini bottle release. And as long as it's not something that's going to re-ferment, then we can again, port it into a keg and we have a little two head filler that does our bombers that uh, will run off of those as well. So, um, but yeah, that's basically the process. That's cool. Um, let's talk about I, what I was going to say. Uh, you know, I love watching this proliferation of small scale stainless um, that was initially designed to allow home brewers to have gear that felt more like pro brewers gear. Um, I've watched it kind of proliferate back into professional brew houses, you know, and everyone from Allagash to Firestone Walker have, you know, small stainless, whether it's Blickman or SS or Spike mm-hmm. or, or Stout or any of these, you know, um, smaller tank manufacturers manufacturers it's amazing just how many of these like half barrel one barrel two barrel um you know kind of uh you know fermentation vessels or unitanks or whatever like now fully plumbed with glycol and everything yeah. you know in order to <laughs> like it's amazing how good the tech is now um but that you that same kind of spirit of uh, experimentation has found its its way back into you know those even these larger production brew houses in that same kind of way um you mentioned the you know earlier talking about trying to um kind of reverse engineer or create an idea of of you know for daybreak i want to talk about that but first a brewery might have 99 problems but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one old orchard is already known for their quality concentrates but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply when brewers need assistance old orchard is just an email phone call or even a text away based in greater grand rapids michigan better known as beer city usa Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In just a few weeks, Brewery DB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of brewery db and increase your taproom traffic set up your account on marketmybrewery.com that's marketmybrewery.com it's easy and it's free so chris talk to me about this process of having this beer that would inspired you um and then wanting to create something that wasn't just a carbon copy of it but was your own expression of it and then figuring out how to get these flavors that are so associated with darker richer roasty beers into such a light and delicate kind of cream ale base yeah so um uh, I guess we were somewhat fortunate that one of our core beers at the time uh, was called Clear Sky, and that was just a straight 5% American cream ale um, that um, we already sold quite a bit of. So we always kind of had that in the tank, and um, it is such a great blank 
uh, canvas for infusing flavors. It's uh, uh, it's a beer we're not um, canning right now. It used to be a core brand and kind of got replaced a year and a half ago, but we still brew it as the base for a ton of um, variants that um, go into cans to this day. Um, so we started with that 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 base and. Um, uh, again, we've got this great restaurant upstairs. So I ran upstairs and just grabbed a handful of coffee that they had under the bar. Um, turns out, you know, because they're, they're using really great ingredients, local where possible. Um, they were using coffee from a local Columbus roaster called one line coffee, who, at least in my opinion, um, I found to be one of the best roasters in the country. Um, definitely what I would consider the best coffee roaster, um, in Columbus or Ohio that I've experienced. And so I was already starting with a really great ingredient and, um, again, kind of going back on my knowledge from my time at Columbus Brewing Company, they, um, at the time, and this is, I don't know if this is how they do their stout to this day, but um, at the time they were doing a seasonal coffee stout and they were doing a coarse grind on the coffee and putting it into the bright tank. And so I thought like, oh, I'll do a coarse grind on this and, um, throw it into the keg. Um, the, you know, the corny keg, like we just talked about, um, I didn't know how to use the grinder that they had up in the restaurant. So I thought like, Oh, I'll put it through. Like there's a little homebrew uh, grain mill um, down in the basement and it was just getting stuck in there. It wasn't uh, getting crushed. And so that didn't work. And so like, ultimately like I couldn't figure out how to crush the coffee. So I just threw it in. And um, when the beer came back out, like I was surprised at how much coffee flavor there was without having crushed it. And so we kind of just kept pushing that envelope a little bit um, down the line and doing it again and again and refining like how much coffee and this and that. But um, uh, ultimately, we've done different experiences, uh, uh, experiments where um, we didn't even did an event where we did coffee paired side by side with the beer it went into. Um, we've done multiple of those, and one of which um, we did a coarse grind, a fine grind, a cold brew, and a whole bean and the same base beer, same um, coffee uh, origin and everything side by side in a flight. And everyone got to try those. And they were all um, drastically different. And um, my favorite leading into that and coming back out was the whole bean approach, which is what we're doing to to this day. How That's fascinating to me. What, how would you describe, you know, if you can dive back into that sense mm-hmm. of memory, how would you describe the difference between, you know, varying uh, uh, grinds of coffee and the way that they expressed in that beer? Um, so I think the biggest one is, um, between the whole bean, whole bean and the coarse, uh, ground, um, the coarse ground, it is a little bit more intense of a flavor. And so, um, a little bit coffee is going to go, uh, go a little bit further. If you grind it, um, you're going to get a little bit stronger or intense of a character, but I think it's also a little bit of a harsher, more stringent character. And, um, some of that may just come down to dosing rates. Like we did equal dosing rates and everything as best we could. And even for the approximation with the cold brew, but, um, I find the whole bean to be a softer, um, I just always describe it to people as how a bag of uncrushed coffee beans smells versus like coffee grounds or coffee in your cup. It's just something different about that bag of untouched beans. It's like the purest form of what that coffee can smell like to some extent. Um, the cold brew was really delicious as well. Um, again, it's kind of a different level of intensity. It does add color to the beer, um, even in a small quantity. And we wanted this bright golden, um, not to look like it was touched by anything dark, um, at all. And so, um, that's one of the reasons why we stuck with the whole bean, but I still kind of personally preferred it. Um, interesting. Our coffee roaster preferred the most intense versions of it. So like the finely ground or the cold brew were their favorites, but, um, I, I prefer the softer, more nuanced whole bean 
uh, approach and character that we get in Daybreak. That's really interesting. And so even when conditioning this on that whole bean coffee, you really don't get any color extraction through that. No, if, if there is, it's imperceptible to the naked eye. Um, I've never sent it to a lab to try to really see. But um, again, we would always um, uh, historically have regular clear sky on a flight next to daybreak and maybe other variants as well. And we never had any noticeable color pickup from that whole bean. So in terms of uh, time and temperature, you know, do you all talk about like, I'm curious what that looks like, um, you know, uh, aiding extraction, obviously warmer temperatures tend to, to boost that cooler temperatures, you know, tamp it down. Um, you know, is there a kind of, and you also are obviously in a production environment, you want mm-hmm. to move beer through at a reasonable speed, you know, through this brew house process. What is, what does that look like for you all? Yeah, so what we've come um, around to, well, I guess, firstly, um, we do it in the bright tank or we did it in the keg, which basically was a bright tank. So um, it's always going into finished beer. And we've worked it out to a pound per barrel um, for at least a lighter beer as the starting point, um, anything less than that. And it's going to need either more time or it's going to be a much softer character. Um, And uh, we sometimes will go a little bit higher depending on, on the beer or, or our beans, if it's a really, um, light roast heavy, uh, blend or, or origin that's going in there, we might use a little bit more. Um, and, um, usually for at least daybreak, it's about three days. Um, so three days, whole bean pound per barrel in the bright tank. And what we've kind of, um, determined is even though it's cold, um, you've got, um, the acidity of the beer, the pressure of being in the bright tank, um, the alcohol is a really good solvent. And so, and really all we want are the oils on, on those beans or within those beans. And so I think that's enough to extract those precious aromatic oils without adding color that you're going to get from, um, crushing a bean and going in there. Um, there's other sugars and carbons and things in in those beans. Once you crush them, that is also going to add to either color and or flavor. Um, so it's one of the other benefits of not crushing it, I think. Are there any other recipe considerations that you make to your normal cream ale in order to, uh, you know, help the kind of coffee, uh, you know, express in the way that you want it to? No. Um, so again, this was, uh, all the infusions we used to do were just existing beers yeah. and I, I wanted it to be, um, a recipe that was, uh, brewed to be its purest form. And so, um, similar to how we work with barrels, I want it to be a good tasting beer on its own before you throw, um, adjuncts at it or throw it into a barrel. Um, and so we just wanted to, it to be the most classic cream ale that, um, you know, to our taste, it's, it's about 40% corn in that recipe. And, um, and then just some pale malt, uh, for the most part and, um, really low IBUs, Willamette hops in that recipe. So, um, kind of just, it just works really well. Um, but that method works great. That's the same way we do it in our Imperial stout. We might use um, a darker roast or an espresso roast for the stout, um, but, or maybe more beans, but, uh, same amount of time, same, uh, largely the same ratio and process. And we're getting, um, just as good coffee extraction there. So with daybreak also vanilla is, is your mm-hmm. other ingredient in that. Talk to me about using vanilla to kind of, you know, highlight and also can, you know, further soften some of that kind of coffee flavor and sweetness. Yeah, exactly. Um, so again, I think this may have come from trying to replicate calm before the storm. There's a lot of beers like this now and some have lactose, some may not have vanilla while there's do, um, things like that. But, um, we found that the vanilla and real vanilla, um, so our preference is Madagascar bourbon, um, vanilla. Um, and, 
it it uh, it adds a perceived sweetness to the beer. Um, and one of the great things about Daybreak and all of our cream ale variants is they drink like a beer. They're not sickly sweet. They may smell sweet or they may smell savory from cinnamon or something, but um, they drink really clean and dry. Um, they're fermented out. Um, and so that's one of the things I love that the vanilla lends that perception of sweetness without actually being sweet on the palate. And, um, and we've experimented with um, the vanilla pastes and... Um, I, I think I tried to extract once or twice in a pinch because the vanilla shortage, you know, four years ago was like really, really bad. Um, it's still not necessarily easy or cheap to use vanilla, real vanilla, but it's a lot easier now than it, than it once was for me. Um, but nothing really kind of to my palate compared to real vanilla. It's a less intense um, character. And so some people don't always pick it up, but it, even if you don't know it's there, I think it's doing something to the beer and real vanilla is kind of like the secret weapon where it makes almost any beer taste better. It really does, but you obviously can't afford to put it in every beer. No, you know, we, uh, with some, uh, another Ohio brewery, when I was talking to Brett Coleman Baker from urban artifact, you know, he has the same exact approach with, uh, with their fruit beers, um, that it's, you know, and the amount is so small that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so interesting to see that what you might perceive as sub threshold, um, you know, in terms of amount of vanilla added can just provide that extra little twist. And I love that idea of highlighting, creating the, you know, perception of something without overdoing, without creating that actual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and these beers, you know, we find it over and over again, those beers that, pre- you know, present themselves as potentially being sweet without actually being sweet, you know, are that beautiful trick that allows that you to create drinkability and something that, uh, where if it were actually that sweet, um, just wouldn't lend itself to that second or third, uh, you know, pint in that kind of, um, you know, drinking situation. So, no, that that's a, a really fun approach. Do you have uh, using that cream ale base? Do you um, have other treatments uh, beyond daybreak where you take it and uh, you know and, and push other ingredients? Yeah, so um, probably the most popular one um, is called cinnamon toast brunch, and so. <laughs> Um, pastry cream ale. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and and it's trying to replicate the, the flavor of a cinnamon toast crunch cereal, obviously, but all of our variants are using again, uh, whole real ingredients. And so we're not dumping cereal into the mash or anything like that. Um, but I think it gets really, really close. And so, um, in this case, all it is, is daybreak plus cinnamon. Um, and uh, we only use Vietnamese cinnamon. Um, it's really, um, a sweet and, um, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Um, almost like savory. Um, it doesn't, uh, lend the same kind of like Christmas candle character that, um, some other types of cinnamon sometimes can. Um, but, uh, that just the simple addition of cinnamon completely changes the beer. Like you really have to think about it to de- detect that there's coffee in there. The interplay of coffee, vanilla, and cinnamon makes it taste more like this, cinnamon graham crackery kind of character which is really beautiful um we just released a variant called um strawberry basil and so there's a bunch of strawberry puree that gets fermented out in the fermenter and then vanilla and fresh basil leaves um, in the bright tank and it's a really beautiful beer again that smells jammy and fruity up front but when you drink it it's dry and clean and herbaceous and really lovely um, and then uh, there's a million other variants, but, you know, there's like a lemon meringue and a creamsicle, um, but they're all just like fruit or, or spices, um, plus cream ale. Um, there's really no like gimmick with, with most of them there. Uh, one question that pops to my mind, while a lot of contemporary breweries are exploring these kinds of flavor approaches in the context of 
tart and kettle soured beers. Um, why approach it through this kind of quote unquote, I don't even want to call it clean beer, but not, not sour or mm-hmm. more typical traditional cream ale base, you know, versus something like kettle sour base. So, um, like we were, I, I, you know, I guess you could say we were late to the game and making kettle sours. We were making barrel aged mixed fermentation sours for three years before we brewed our first kettle sour. Um, and I guess, um, you know, we started playing around with clear sky in, um, the end of 2014 or beginning of 2015, um, which does not predate kettle sours as a trend, but it predates it as like an explosive trend. Uh, most people, um, weren't making them. I don't know if there was a single brewery in Columbus. I could reliably find a quick sour or a kettle sour at, um, you know, five, six years ago. So that's probably part of it. Again, part of it is I was working with what I had. So I was starting with four 15 barrel tanks and filling 20 taps. And so I was just looking to infuse existing brands that I already had kegs of because we didn't have a a smaller pilot system or tiny tanks to work with. Um, And again, it's just uh, the cream is such a perfect canvas to showcase flavor without anything else. Like you're almost getting almost nothing from the beer other than drinkability. Um, And so there's no acidity there. There's no sweetness um, or whatever else that you might get from other um, types of styles that, um, um, might interact uniquely with these ingredients, but, um, you know, like it's just pure ingredient, I I think to some extent when we do it this way. Right. And beer is already acidic, you know, so Mm -hmm. what you're talking about, even with kettle sours can be, you know, dropping it down by one and a half, you know, pH, uh, um, you know, and you can certainly achieve some of that adding acidity just by adding fruit in order to, you know, because that That's very fruit true. often brings its own acidity to it. Uh, and it is a funny thing that kettle sours today are generally, you know, a lot of brewers are trying to dial pH in closer to that pH of the fruit so that it feels and tastes that way that it, they expect it. Uh, no, but I'm just, just curious about that, but it makes mm-hmm. sense. And, uh, you know, and that's certainly, a, you know, a rational approach to that. Um, since we, you started talking about barrel aged beers, I definitely want to kind of move the conversation in mm-hmm. that direction. Um, before we do ABS commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As a part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page and find out when the contest opens up and how to enter to win a keg Viking. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, you know the your barrel aged beer program. Talk to me a little bit about how you got your start doing that, uh, what you led you into it, and um, how you found the kind of voice for your barrel program. Because I, you know from the beers that I've tasted, there definitely is a a particular point of view to the way that you all approach barrel aged beers. That um, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say that it's uncommon, but it's just very you know consistent. Um, you know, and you follow this approach in a, in a very reasonable way. Um, you know, so talk to me a little bit about, uh, how you got started with that and, uh, how you kind of built a direction for that program. Yeah. So, um, one of the, the number one things I, I really wanted to work with, um, as I got into the professional side of the industry was, was barrel aging, um, the, um, bef- right before I got hired at Columbus Brewing, I had purchased a little 10 gallon rum barrel to put some homebrewed stout into. And from there I was always pestering them. Like, when are we going to buy barrels? Like, can I be the one to, to fill them? And, uh, they did a little bit of that at the time. They're doing a lot more now. Um, but, uh, when I moved to Wolfridge again, it was kind of like, you know, we don't have a lot of money right now. Like we can get some barrels here and there. 
Um, but it was kind of intermittent, but finally we kind of took the plunge and, and bought, um, a handful of used bourbon barrels from Watershed, who's a local distillery. And again, it was kind of just an opportunity, um, based on the, the restaurant poured their bourbon and they're two miles away and there's no shipping and we know they're ultra fresh and they're in really good shape. They haven't been shipped and, and beaten up. And so, um, for years, those were reliable as barrels because they didn't leak and, you know, they didn't cause issues and they were cheaper than, than ordering from a broker or something. Um, uh, and you, and you and, guys are so close to Kentucky. Well, not so close, but you're reasonably close, you know, drive, you know, a mm -hmm. couple hour drive down to where most bourbon is made. So, uh, it gives you, a, um, as you wanted to expand that, I imagine you had some more options, uh, at your fingertips. Yeah. So, um, you know, we started off largely only aging our Imperial stout direwolf, which is a, a kind of a core beer we have it around most of the year. And, um, and, and that's been, 80% of what's going gone into a, a barrel on the clean side for us over the years. And again, it's just a really great base beer. And so that's where the consistency comes in in, in a lot of ways. Um, but um, pretty early on, I, I started experimenting, uh, you know, getting rum barrels and, um, brandy barrels, apple brandy barrels, et cetera. Um, we filled, you know, the huge, a huge gamut, um, by now, some of the things I'm most excited for looking forward to, uh, to next year or later this year, Armagnac and, cognac barrels and um, um some mixed finish barrels and things like that um but uh you know just having a couple two or three beers that are really delicious on their own and that are uh, big enough robust enough sweet enough bitter enough i think that balance of everything is really important um so it's maybe a little bit more of an old school approach um we were talking beforehand about the difference between kind of like dire wolf who which i would consider a fairly uh, th uh thick and sweet beer um, at least for my palate, but then modern Imperial stouts are often, you know, five or more points of finishing gravity, you know, sweeter and fuller body than Direwolf might be. And, um, and for my palate, it's almost like too sweet sometimes. And so I, I like that like more restrained balanced beer that's got sweetness, but bitterness, um, alcohol, um, that helps it age better. Um, and we started doing sours about a year later. Um, this is a, a, a something else I really wanted to do. Um, but it was like, well, we can buy some wine barrels for sours or we can buy bourbon barrels for stout. And like, well, you know, the stout's going to sell better. Um, it's more exciting. Like we can't not do bourbon barrel stout. Um, so what I started doing was um, basically retiring the barrels from the clean program into our sour program. And so um, in an ideal world, we probably would have just bought fresh wine barrels every time. But every time I emptied um, direwolf barrels, they went to the other side of our basement and um, we brewed beer intentionally to become sour. So we weren't pulling beer off of a tank. Um, we were brewing more dexterous wort um, with lower hopping rates and, you know, different um, thought process going into it and then fermenting in the barrel like it's a mini fermenter. And we've grown that. Um, I've got some pictures on my phone where we've got like five barrels um, with a bunch of plastic wrap trying to like house them in so like if the fermentation sprayed everywhere it wouldn't be contaminating Don't affect our everything else right yeah and now we've got about 100 barrels down there just you know stacked on top of each other like you can barely move in that basement now and um, i can't retire anymore because we're pretty pretty much out of space um but uh but you know it's now developed into this big program where we're looking at you know, creating really cool blends and things like that and the beer is sitting long enough to get nice and funky um, so those are kind of the two sides of our, our barrel aging program right now, the, the wild and the clean. 
Sure. Let's talk about the the clean side now. You mm-hmm. know, you mentioned that with Dire Wolf that the core of this, you know, is the same way it is with Daybreak is a beer that stands alone mm-hmm. and a beer that, uh, you know, a well-made beer um, that you can drink before it's put into a barrel. Um, this is a, that's a strategy that we see a lot of brewers diverging on, you know, um, today there are a lot of brewers going the other direction and brewing beers that are not intended to be drunk on their own, where mm-hmm. they are simply going to be either blending components, they are ultra high gravity, or they are um, just very excessively uh, uh, sweet, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, you know, and they are built for this kind of long-term, you know, long-haul aging, especially as we start seeing uh, aging times and barrels extend out past the two-year mark. Yeah. Um, creating a beer that can even live that long <laughs> in a barrel <laughs> is its own kind of technical feat. Um, but you seem to, you know, be drawn to that other direction where, you know, that same beer needs to be a very drinkable thing now. Um, that changes the kind of structure, the the approach to actual barreling or it must in terms of time, uh, you know, and other things. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, how, what that recipe looks like in order, and then how you think about that recipe in terms of the amount of time that it'll also spend in a barrel. And then what, you know, of course, how you kind of taste through that and make some of these determinations about when beers are done and ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, I guess in, in its own way, Direwolf has proven itself to, uh, handle, uh, age in a barrel and in a bottle very well. Um, we've had, uh, we just opened an unbarrel aged bottle of Direwolf from 2015 recently, and it was beautiful. Um, but we've done a two or three double barrel projects with that beer now that it's about a year, um, in each barrel. So two years or so, um, total and it's coming out great, but, um, it's a beer that, um, is, is layered. Um, you know, a lot of people build recipes, um, to be simple. And this is kind of like, you know, if, if you want your recipe simple, this beer recipe probably would give you a heart attack. Um, there's, <laughs> there's probably like 16 different malts in there, maybe more, um, and, oh, geez, uh, Chris, you have a homebrew recipe that you're making. Pretty, at a yeah, pretty scale. much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just layering all kinds of different caramels and things, um, you know, a longish boil. It's not a really long boil, but, you know, it's like a two and a half hour boil. And um, uh, but uh, 50, 60 IBUs. Um, so not crazy, but but high enough, higher than probably what some people are doing now. And it still it finishes um, around ten or eleven Plato on average, um, so it's not by any means like lacking body, but right, it's not right. it's not crazy. So that's kind of the structure going into the barrel, um, and we we try to give it a minimum of twelve months. Um, it tastes pretty good at eight, um, but usually I prefer it at twelve. And now we're getting a little bit longer. Uh, the pandemic helped a little bit with that, with slowing down things. And so like fourteen, sixteen months, it's like oh, like I like this even better. Um, um, but for like, as far as brewing things more intended to go right into a barrel or maybe aging longer, um, now that we're getting bigger and, um, you know, we've got a little bit more money to play around with in, in the barrel program, we're starting to brew some, some new recipes that are a little bit stronger, a little bit, um, higher finishing gravity. And I've definitely seen where some brewers talk about like blending, like brewing, like a super dry and a super sweet, and then finding a blend after the fact. And I really love that approach. You know, we just haven't really had a lot of capability to like build that yet um but that's one of those things i'm looking forward to playing around with in the future 
Marty uh, from Revolution was talking about that on the podcast uh, a while back that uh, they're, you know, like 20 Play-Doh finishing gravity thrown into barrels just has a different aging character to it and makes for, a, you know, it's never some you never want to drink by itself, <laughs> um, you know, but thrown into the blend, it adds you mm-hmm. know, that, that nice kind of component. It's just interesting to talk about. Um, but I can't let this 16 malt thing go uh, <laughs> without asking you about like how and why, uh, you know, you've built such a layered difficult now and of course your the production brewers have to hate you for this yeah um you know because that that's got to be a, a terrible brew day when when mm-hmm. you're you know um if you're using that many malls then you're opening and measuring out you know potentially from some of the bags which is never a fun process but talk to me about going through and your your kind of uh thought process in building such a uh, difficult and <laughs> extensive kind of recipe for this stout base. Sure. Um, you know, some of it is, uh, is trying to include um, like a pretty wide gamut of, of flavors. And so, you know, the base is kind of split between um, Maris Otter and uh, Vireman Barca Vienna malt. Um, it used to be predominantly Maris Otter, but um, over the years we've used their the Barca line of, of malts um, a lot. And um, they have a nice rounder, sweeter uh, character to them, and they t- tend to get a better extract. And so it was kind of that combined element where um, it went from being like, two or three bags in as like a portion of something to being like half of the base malt. Um, there's a ton of oats in there. So right there, there's three malts, there's roasted barley, um, chocolate rye, pale chocolate. And they're all just, I'm getting different flavors from all these different things. Some of it, I'm thinking about color. Some of it, I'm thinking about the roastiness or head colors. So roasted barley is in there mostly just so the head is darker. Um, so it's, there's a pl- plenty enough other malts in there to give it a black color to the beer itself. Um, and we used to double mash this beer. So on our pub system, I really wanted um, as strong and viscous of a wort as I could get. And so we would brew, um, fill our 15 barrel mash tun to almost overflowing and then rack off about um, 10 barrels of wort and then empty that and then do another mash and then fill up um, the kettle um, to 20 barrels um, pre-boil. Um, with the second mash. And so having the two mashes, each mash was slightly different. And so it wasn't quite as onerous, I guess, at that point in time where it wasn't 15 malts in one mash. Um, it was more like 10 or 11 um, and some differences between the two. Um, but now on our big system, it's kind of just all all thrown in together. Um, it's been refined over the years. It may be a little bit less than, than what we started with um, as some malts have come and gone or we've learned some things. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely... Definitely a complicated beer. <laughs> then you know, in terms of like caramel malts in the middle of that, mm-hmm. obviously I'm I'm counting. There's you got to have some in yeah. there, um, or mul- many multiples of there. Uh, you know, I, I'm curious how you can balance out those stronger, you know, darker malt flavors with some of those, uh, you know, kind of mid-tone malts mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and don't just kind of blow over completely, you know, to the point where, you know, they wouldn't matter in the beer. Um, so, um, I, you know, spent a lot of time, um, like really digging into the, the malts that were available and, and the flavors they were supposed to give off and tasting things and really kind of coming into deciding like what flavors I, I really enjoy and want to layer in. So, 
um, uh, there's uh, a biscuit and aromatic malt, but um, I've come to only want um, those from Dingaman's. Um, I've tried several other maltsters and I don't like it quite as much. And so um, kind of like, you know, I maybe could have gotten rid of one or both of those depending on which maltster it was, if it wasn't my preferred maltster. Um, uh, there's some 77 and, um, there's a Carabahemian in there, which I think is really beautiful malt, um, uh, some C120 and which really could probably go away was, we're also now using, uh, Simpsons DRC, which is different, but, um, but also similar in at least color profile, but, um, they're all kind of just lending their own little, um, element. The DRC's like got some of those like dark fruit notes that a 120 might have, but it's also got some roasty coffee notes to it, which is really, um, delicious. So, um, it's just trying to, you know, layer all that in there and, and whether or not it's like necessary, I guess is up to interpretation, but, um, it's, it's creating, uh, a, definitely a complex beer that I think, I think you almost get more of that character from the barrel aged version of this beer than fresh fresh. It's also pretty like bitter, um, and happy upfront. Um, but as it ages out, like it, all this starts mellowing into that caramel toffee, um, fudge kind of character that you might be missing in the, in fresh direwolf. Interesting. Interesting. You know, so when it's uh, five years old with this 2015 kind of approach to it, um, you know, what direction, how does it taste at that kind of age point? You know, because most of these bigger Imperial stouts, you know, unadjuncted that will drink that start getting that old, um, definitely start tilting kind of Belgian-y in flavor with, uh, dark fruits, um, you know, dark red fruits, you know, you know, in particular, um, you know, for you, how does that kind of layered caramel approach kind of push this beer over that much time? Um, so it, you definitely do get a little bit more of that dark fruit, but not excessively, um, uh, you know, that particular bottle, um, the recipe has changed a little bit over, you know, all these years. And so it doesn't completely represent what the beer is now. Um, it, we used to brew it to 9.3% and now we brew it to 10.8%. Um, but, uh, it's still surprising the amount of like chocolate and roast that's present in that beer. Um, I think it, uh, you know, it's the alcohol feels less intense, um, or more smoothed out over time as well. What is, you know, as you're making some of these brewing decisions over time, um, you know, how does that decision-making process go for you? You know, how do you, you know, um, you know, how's your process of kind of review and editing, um, you know, with some of this core things like a beer like Dire Wolf go, you know, where's that moment where you say, maybe I should take this malt out or try this other malt, or maybe we should bump the ABV up a little bit. And maybe that's, you know, what does that process look like for you? Are other people involved? Is that just a you tasting, you know, do you take a deliberate kind of review approach to it? Um, you know, do you brew tests and then, uh, you know, see how those kind of one-off test batches, you know, work out and then make some decisions about how you move forward. What does that kind of iterative process look like for, uh, for you and Wolf's Ridge? Um, I think it's a, it's a definitely a combination of different things. So um, some of uh, the changes have been dictated by supply in, uh, of ingredients. So I used to be a, a huge fan of Patagonia coffee malt. And I used to have that in pretty much every dark beer that we brewed. And now you can't get that anymore. Um, and um, the other coffee malts, which are often called brown malts um, out there, um, I don't think are anything close to what that beer malt was. So we still use the, uh, brown malt in Direwolf, but I don't like it nearly as much. And so I'm kind of looking for 
a substitute that will get me closer to what I, I used to get from that coffee malt, which was it, you know, really not super dark, but like I had like a, that roasted coffee flavor, uh, but not adding a ton of color. So I didn't feel bad about putting a couple bags of it in there on top of the other roasted grains that we had. Um, where a lot of this brown malt, like it looks like, like a chocolate malt, um, more often than not. Um, so that's been a change that kind of was forced on us. Um, the ABV has been boosted just kind of based on, um, the, the continued barrel aging of the beer, but also just consumer trends. I feel like people want a slightly stronger beer and I don't know, um, how it ages in a barrel or, or over time, um, notwithstanding, like, I don't know how, if people would take direwolf quite as seriously, if it was only 9% in this day and age, you know, so, you know, even almost 11% is still kind of low, um, for a lot of big Imperial stouts that go into barrels these days. So, um, that was one of those changes that I think just made sense, um, for the beer and for the consumer. Um, helps it stand yeah. up to some of the other adjunct flavors that you throw into there too. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of keep the beer script going, you know, as you as you taste malts, um, you, you know, and evaluate malts, you know, do you have a process around that? Do you, uh, steep them or make them tease or you just, you know, chewing and, uh, and tasting or, uh, you know, and, and how do you, what's that discovery process look like? Is this, you know, something where you're, run into CBC and tasting some new things that, uh, you know, folks are putting out there or, uh, you know, what does that sampling process look like for you? Yeah. So we're not, um, super scientific about it, but yeah, it's mostly, uh, chewing it and, um, and then just kind of, uh, like really trying to think about, you know, like, where does this fit in? Um, is it already, um, a style or flavor covered in one of our existing suppliers? Do we need to add someone? I definitely enjoy trying new things. I enjoy trying the local malts at conferences. And if I'm at CBC, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying a lot of different things, but, um, I, you know, we use so many different brands as it is. Like I try to, to mitigate that as much as I can, but if there's something that's really delicious, like, um, you know, we didn't use a lot from Patagonia. Um, we, we tried several different things. There was a, a C35 I really loved that they had, but other than that, it was mostly that coffee, but like I was, you know, willing to bring Patagonia into the brewery because I loved the flavor that, that, that malt had so much. Everyone seems to love the Patagonia extra pale malt also. Um, that was a good one too. Right. Right. Another big component with this dire wolf program is adding adjuncts and flavors to that. Obviously it's something that you do even, uh, you know, with light beers like daybreak. Um, but talk to me a little bit about how you build, you know, ideas for flavor combinations in dire wolf and then, uh, you know, how that process may be similar or different, uh, you know, to how you also do that with daybreak. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of times it's just starting with an idea of, of um, you know, a flavor that we want to get out of the beer and then trying to backwards engineer, like how we would do that our way with our, our given constraints. Um, the first time we ever put like peanuts into Dire Wolf, um, or, you know, we called it like a peanut butter stout, but we weren't using peanut butter um, at the time. Um, I wasn't really aware of like the dried um, peanut flowers that are easy to get or, or more easy to get now. Um, and so we just roasted um, unsalted peanuts ourselves. Um, I think anytime you add heat to uh, spices or nuts and whatnot, you're you're bringing oils out and um, you're going to get a more full flavor. Um, we've seen that um, is a really big deal with coconut. Um, if it's not roasted, you can barely taste it. 
and uh, just crushing those up and putting it in the, in the, the beer. Um, we called it peanut butter direwolf, and that was kind of our approximation at the time. Um, it's not it's not the same as most peanut beers, but that um, I felt good about it, and it tasted great. But it you know it tastes like peanuts. So you start layering in vanilla, and then that gets you a little bit closer. Um, you maybe um, I would maybe now if I was replicating that same beer, um, put a little bit of cacao and maybe not even say it's in there because instead of calling it a chocolate peanut butter, but just finding the right cacao in a smaller quantity might help add again another layer and perception of sweetness or smoothness that would make you think peanut butter. That's usually kind of how I approach it if it's a, a common flavor. Um, otherwise, it's thinking through also like what what's safe to put in the beer and and how are we going to process it and handle it? How are we going to add it to the beer and trying to be strategic about that before we go to do it? Um, because we've been, um, uh, caught with our pants down, so to speak, um, in the past where we're working with a weird ingredient that Rick, like, I didn't think this through. This is, this is dumb. Uh, the first time we wanted to do like a big marshmallow beer, um, we did, we thought if you, if you boiled it, you'd boil off any flavor. And so what's the point? Um, and we didn't want to just get a picture of it. And so we got marshmallow fluff and we decided to basically make a giant, like multiple kegs of chocolate milk. Um, we also had this like really expensive cocoa powder that someone in our kitchen recommended. And, um, we, we added hot water and we're trying to stir this shit up and it's like the stickiest mess you've ever seen in your life. And like, we're pumping this into a tank now. And, um, so I would never do it that way again. Um, but yeah, trying to think, think it through, um, is also a big, big key, key component. Um, yeah. Are there any other, uh, you know, curious or interesting solutions that you've found to add those adjuncts into beer in a way that, uh, you know, uh, meets the expectation, uh, but doesn't create a giant ridiculous mess. I'm just <laughs> thinking, you know, a few weeks ago I was talking to Marcus Baskerville of weathered souls and he was mentioning their marshmallow, they use marshmallow powder and that okay. was their marshmallow marshmallow solution around that. Uh, you know, are, are there any of these, uh, um, other kinds of solutions that you've, you've found that, uh, you know, create a fun adjunct flavor without, uh, you know, some of the mess. Yeah. Cinnamon is kind of like a secret weapon in a lot of ways. Um, we did, um, like, so a more recent peanut butter stout that we did, um, it was a, a collaboration with Listerman Brewing and, um, Lil Beaver, um, out in Chicago and, uh, we called it man beaver wolf, but, um, that one I did use peanut flour in, um, cause I didn't want to deal with toasting nuts at the time for the size of the batch. Um, but we layered a little bit of cinnamon in there to just, um, um, add an extra dimension to the beer. Um, it wasn't really a, a strong characteristic. There's, uh, there's cinnamon in most uh, things that I want, like, like a graham crackery character to, um, I know you can get like crumbled graham, graham crackers on if it's, if it's just called graham, but like we've, we've tried it before, but it's like a powder, um, and it's a mess and it kind of like dissolves into your beer. So even if you put it in a bag, um, I kind of don't like how it actually like works in the beer. So cinnamon, um, usually at least in a lower quantity, um, kind of gives you that graham, um, type of, of flavor. So there's quite a few beers that um, we layer cinnamon in that way. It just the idea of cinnamon creates a it's been baked kind of uh, yeah definitely you know crusty idea to it no that's that's an interesting one almost like using vanilla at that low threshold level mm -hmm. you know just to kind of put a point on it now do you mention the ingredient and this is something I always find interesting that uh, 
um, you know, brewers feel compelled to talk about everything that they throw into a beer, um, almost as if the more things that you've thrown into it, the better. <laughs> um, but you mentioned earlier of using uh, cacao, but also potentially not talking about it because every time you mention something that's in there, it creates an expectation on the mind of the consumer that they should be able to taste it, you know? And so naturally, if you say this is a such and such beer with peanuts and cinnamon, you know, people was like, well, I really get the nuts, but I don't really taste the cinnamon in that. And then of course you've created an expectation mm -hmm. that you haven't fulfilled, even if the point is, you know, to, to use that ingredient in a small way to highlight something else. You know, when I go out and sit down at a restaurant and, and order a dish, like, you know, no chef is going to tell me every single fucking spice that they put into <laughs> that thing. And I don't expect that to be on, on the menu. I expect to, you know, taste something that is a, you know, a beautiful creation and a thoughtful, uh, you know, creation from the mind of someone who knows how to, you know, work with all of these flavors and ingredients to create something that I'm going to enjoy. Um, you know, and so from your perspective as a brewer, just, you know, how do you balance that kind of, you know, customer expectation versus, um, you know, wanting to also be truthful in labeling, um, you yeah. know, it's not necessarily an easy question to answer. Yeah, it's, it is tough. Um, uh, you know, we tend to err on the side of, of listing more than, than not listing. Um, part of that is, um, because food is such a huge part of what Woolsridge does. Um, I try to be very aware of like food allergies. And so like anything with nuts, we actually have a little red emblem that, um, says contains real nuts that we put on all of our labels of beers that get nuts just because, um, I, I have an ex brewer, that worked for us that was hyper allergic to peanuts and one of our owners is allergic to tree nuts. And so I try to always be aware of that. Um, and so it's like, there's always a little bit of a fear. Like if I don't tell you, like, is that a problem for somebody? Um, uh, you know, like we, um, used to, for our cattle sours, uh, grow up yogurt cultures. And then I didn't think twice about it. Like it, I, I was just reading about how well it worked for some people. And I kind of liked the profile. And then one day someone told me like, well, does your, your label say that it contains lactose? I'm like, what are you talking about? And there's no lactose in the spirit. I'm like, well, didn't you use yogurt? I'm like, well, it's like a tiny, tiny amount of yogurt for a huge amount of beer. It's not like we intentionally added lactose, but there's technically trace amounts in there. I'm like, maybe I should disclose that. I don't know, you know, um, but we definitely often do get bit, um, where, you know, uh, another secret weapon cinnamon beer this Christmas, we did a beer called Cosmo Canyon that, um, uh, uh, was a cranberry. We called it a cranberry sauce, Berliner Weiss. And it was the primary flavor was, uh, orange peel and cranberry puree. Um, but we did add cinnamon to kind of, again, just tie it together. And I felt like that would give it a little extra oomph towards the cranberry sauce kind of character, even though cranberry sauce usually doesn't use cinnamon. Um, but a lot of people were like, I love this beer. I love this beer, but like needs more cinnamon. I'm like, well, it's not really, wasn't the point. Um, so maybe I shouldn't have put it on there. Uh, yeah, it, it can definitely, it can be a struggle. And I feel like I want to use, like maybe be more diligent about not putting stuff on there if it doesn't have to be. Um, if it's not real obvious, kind of just like when you're entering beer in competition, we've definitely been bit the same way where like, I feel like, Oh, like, you know, this is, it is in there. So I'll list it. But then of course, like if a judge can't taste it, then they ding you for it. So. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't mean violating any food safety for regulations sure, for because, sure. because I definitely think in terms of food safety, every potential mm -hmm. allergen absolutely, you know, should be listed. It's the ethical, moral thing to do. And I think it's just something the entire industry needs to do to avoid 
it becoming a federally regulated yeah. thing pushed down on us. Um, and I say that because I both of my kids have food allergies. One is, is just recently been diagnosed as celiac. Um, the other is deathly allergic to peanuts and tree nuts and shellfish. You know, and so it's mm-hmm. something that we live with on a daily concern. You know, reading labels, being you know, being very careful about this kind of thing. Um, you know. And so you're right. It is a delicate balance. We're not talking about those things. If there are people who uh, cannot consume lactose, you know, cannot consume other ingredients, like, yes, you should absolutely list those, you know, so that consumers can make an informed choice. But, you're, mm-hmm. you know, like if you're using a small amount of a you know, hint of a spice of some sort or yeah. another, uh, or in this case, using vanilla, you know, in order to highlight something, um, you know, uh, something that people are not allergic to, uh, you know, just seems like, um, you know, brewers. Uh, you know, and we're, I'm guilty of it too, because, you know, we're, you know, as we are evaluating and, uh, you know, and going, you know, you know, uh, pushing beers in front of our blind panel, you know, we always wrestle with that idea. Do we talk about every special ingredient? Do we list everything there or mm-hmm. do we try to, you know, approach it from that other direction and let the tasters taste and see you know how that matches up with uh you know the expectation that a brewer might create with their own marketing and so you know we we've done it both ways it's fascinating to to see what people taste when they are not given that kind of Mm -hmm. suggestion or told what those special ingredients are Um, sometimes things are obvious sometimes they're not but uh um, anyway, that, that's kind of interesting. Let's, let's talk a little bit. Um, you know, you, you mentioned before that you've got a barrel aged, uh, uh, kind of traditional sour beer program, making mixed fermentation, you know, beers, um, you know, generally taking a relatively low acid approach to this. And, uh, you know, and now that that side of the, the brewing program has been able to grow, you've also received some accolades for it with some medals at Fobob. Um, talk to me a little bit about the kind of, you know, how that program has evolved and your philosophy, um, you know, and then technique around, uh, you know, building beers for that kind of sour barrel aging, mixed culture barrel aging. Yeah, so the very first barrels that we filled were uh, Flanders Red, um, and um, at the time, I knew I was going to give it a lot of age. Uh, like I said, we kind of just like took some X Dire Wolf barrels and, and brewed the Flanders into it, and kind of forgot about it for a while. And um, finally, um, I was like being like really diligent about thinking like this beer needs to come out of the barrel. Um, we've got a little bit more space now. We expanded into the other half of the basement in the building that we are renting in our downtown location. And, um, I was tasting it. I'm like, it tastes about ready. It's, it's starting to get pretty tart. It had been about a year and a half or so. And I, I figured like, Oh, let's pop the bung. Maybe we can get a cool pellicle shot. Um, that's a post on Instagram or whatever. And I realized that like over a third of the barrel had evaporated, um, in those three or five barrels, whatever it was. And I was like, Holy cow. Like I need to get the beer out of, out of here now. I didn't realize it was so quite so bad. Um, and so from there, like we, we moved pretty hard into developing, um, our own sour, like, uh, more of a program. We brought in a, a horizontal bright tank, which is the only kind of, um, uh, stainless vessel that we could actually fit in the low ceilings of that side of our basement, um, dedicated pump and, and, uh, all kinds of tri-clamp fittings and everything. They're all marked with pink tape. Um, and, and then as we added more and more barrels, um, being aware of, because they were ex direwolf barrels, there was sometimes still spirit flavor left in them. 
and bourbon um, in like a saison is not necessarily a super uh, cohesive flavor pairing. And uh, you never knew, like sometimes like you'd never know it was a bourbon barrel after it on the first fill after direwolf. And then other times it was pretty intense. And early on, we didn't have enough blending stock to um, really do much with it if it got intense. So actually the very first batch of Terre de Sauvage Green that we brewed, um, that's our dry hopped um, a mixed fermentation sour, or sa- we used to call it a Saison. We've kind of moved on from calling it a Saison because of the implications there. But uh, at about two months, I decided to dump it because it was so overwhelmingly bourbon forward. And I'm not sure exactly why, especially that batch. Um, my, uh, brewer at the time, Lewis was kind of horrified and he was like really upset for several days. Like you're dumping all this beer. It, it tastes good. It's just a lot of bourbon. Like let's blend it. I'm like, it's going to take us a year to blend this out. Let's just start again. Um, we, we just racked right on top of the yeast cake. And so we didn't have to buy more yeast or anything. Um, I guess uh, one of the owners didn't even realize I had done it until like a year or two later. And he was like, what? You never told me you dump. It was like five or seven barrels worth of beer, but it was the right call. Um, the next batch, um, after like two or three months, we got it out of the barrel. Um, and, um, that was our first gold medal at Fobab. And so, um, we designed those, that series of beers, a little more low acid. Um, it, it was all soured with uh, lactobacillus, no pediococcus, because I didn't want ropiness. I didn't want to worry about diacetyl. And, um, and we thought like, oh, we're going to turn and burn these, uh, these beers in three months. Well, um, between like the speed that they actually sell because mixed fermentation beer does not sell as fast as stout or barely right. stout or IPA or kettle sours and everything else. Um, and the amount of work it took to like handle those beers, we couldn't run it through our normal bottling machine or anything. Um, it just started aging longer and longer, but they're actually, it's producing better beer now because of it. Uh, but yeah, now it's just a, but there's several different red beers in there. Um, a lot of different like grain bills. We're using a lot more heritage grains. We've moved to like almost predominantly aged hops, um, going in on the hot side, unless we wanted a more bitter, um, hop forward beer. But yeah, so that's kind of like how the, the program got built up and, um, we definitely have some high acidity beers now, but we tried to, um, try not to overwhelm it too much or with, with every brand. And we just, uh, last week we filled four punch-ins with, um, Brett only or Brett. And there's some Hefeweizen and yeast in there actually. And, um, uh, one was pretty heavily hopped and I just wanted those as blending stock to blend down. If we have something that's too acidic or something, we can blend in some pale Brett beer or happy Brett beer, um, to kind of, uh, knock it back a little bit. What's, uh, you know, now you mentioned primarily using lacto, but you're also using bread in that fermentation in addition mm-hmm. to the lacto. Um, you know, how do you keep that culture doing what you want it to do and not, uh, picking up other things along the way? Certainly you're talking about, a you know, a, uh, an environment that's not necessarily impervious to, to other things happening in it, um, you know, in that kind of barrel so, uh, you, you know, is that just a, a process of, of tasting and pulling things out if they start going the wrong direction or, uh, you know, do you have some strategy for, for making sure that, uh, you know, the, the culture stays where you want it to be? So, um, we've got quite, I mean, if you looked at like what we intentionally pitched into different batches or barrels down there, um, you know, there's, there's probably a dozen different like combinations that are going on that we know of. And then there's been a lot of mixing. And so I've tried to, on that side of things, have a more holistic, free flowing, um, uh, attitude towards it and just letting the barrels kind of do what they do and dictate to us what's going on with them. Um, to date, I have not, 
um, gotten rid of any of our barrels on our sour program because they got too acidic or, um, you know, we're producing really bad beer. There's probably four that, um, that I'm going to get rid of soon. Um, um, because they were kind of turning south in the last time we, um, emptied them, but they weren't that bad, but, um, we have so many barrels we can replace them with now as we're just selling off our empty bourbon barrels. So I have more than enough stock to replace any ones that we want to get out of the program, but we've been pretty lucky there, but you know, um, I, I've not intentionally added pediococcus to a culture, but there's probably some down there. I think there's probably some in our Flanders culture. Um, for years I was, um, uh, uh, saving bottle dregs of Lambic and things like that and dumping them into barrels and just kind of letting it be its own thing. Um, we've got a, a really diverse um, set of flora in um, a sherry punch in. That was one of our earlier fills. And so uh, once or twice a year, we'll take that and top off um, any other pale sour. That's a pale base in the sherry punch in and, and just top up the barrels so we don't have the extreme evaporation loss that we saw on that initial Flanders. And then we have a couple punch ins with red that we can do that with as well if we need to. But um, uh, and so that, that barrel has spread its culture to a lot of other barrels down there. And uh, over time it is kind of creating like our own, uh, a bit of a house uh, character, but, um, fresh pitch barrels, we've kind of moved away from trying to seed a house culture that we're keeping. We used to keep one in carboys and, um, we're just buying some fresh lab pitches, but then again, with the blending and what's in the air and maybe bottle dregs once in a while and whatnot, like it's kind of becoming its own thing, um, in time. Sure. Sure. Um, zooming out from this, uh, you know, cause we're, we're starting to get towards the end here. Um, how do you, you know, thinking about all the beer that Wolf's Ridge, uh, produces, how do you maintain a standard of quality and, you know, and point of view for the bigger piece, especially as the entire beer market changes, you know, over the last six, seven years, you guys have been rolling through this, um, the entire market has been has probably gone through a couple of different, you know, significant uh, shifts in terms of what consumers want, what they're excited by, you know, and what they continue to ask for. Um, but you know, and as you have dove uh, dove into some of these you know, other things, um, how do you maintain that kind of consistency and quality? You know, for the organization as a whole, especially as you've been able to grow out at a second facility, um, you know, that, that's not an easy thing for everybody to do. But but is there a, you know, a, something that drives that for you? Um, you know, I think um, for me, again, it, it starts with ingredients and trying to be like trying not to experiment with ingredients too often um, or make too many big changes there. Um uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm turning away suppliers all the time who want me to try out something new or has a better price. And um, a lot of times I'll stick to my guns because I know what's tried and true. I know what flavors I really like. Um, it's really hard to like do better than that in my, in my view now, but I am willing to entertain that. And we have made some changes, but, um, um, so that's one, one key, um, uh, over the last couple of years, we've done, um, pretty heavy implementation of like sensory training at our brewery. And so we've got, um, sales staff and brewery staff and, um, 
Um, there's probably even some people in our tap room that are trained up on this and we're using um, an app called draft lab that um, we can track brands and, and we can do hedonic tests, which are, you know, just a gut check. Like, do you like it or do you not? And uh, you know, description tests where you can go into all the different chemical names and, and what aromas and flavors you're getting and whatnot, the color. And then you can then take that description test and then turn it into a true to uh, brand test and see, is this batch of daybreak on par with previous batches of daybreak is there something different or or standing out Um, and sometimes we'll get flags on that and they'll say like well people picked up on like this batch of daybreak is less roasty and fruitier Um, you know what happened there and it's like well nothing happened other than I changed the coffee and this new um, coffee origin is less intense and so um, sometimes that's intended and a good thing and other times it's like okay well like um, we don't want to stray too far away from our number one sellers. So that's where I might cut back where usually daybreak is 66% um, house roast, which is a medium roast from one line and then 33% of a light roast. But then sometimes that light roast is so subtle. Um, I don't, I need a little bit more of that darker medium roast in there to balance it out because we, as much as I love the light roast in that beer, um, if it's a hundred percent light roast, which we've tried over the years, some people are like, I don't really know. I don't taste the coffee, but it's just like a really floral fruity coffee. It's not that rich chocolatey, like roasted coffee flavor. So there's a balance to be had there. Um, and, um, with, with size and time comes a little bit more, um, money to invest in things like a DO meter and, uh, th- you know, something that I wish we would have had years ago, but we got one last year. And, um, there's a, a, a world of uh, learning to go um, with using a piece of equipment like that, that, um, is improving our beer, but it's also just a million rabbit holes. We're like, Oh shit. Like now we got to look at this. Now we got to look at that. <laughs> like, Oh wait, we changed right, this now. Right. Um, but yeah, just trying to, you know, holistically invest in, in our people and our equipment, um, be careful about changing our recipes too much. Um, but yeah, consistency is definitely one of the things that like I've tried to pride ourselves on over the years. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the next big, uh, thing on the Wolf's Ridge horizon? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, um, with the, the pandemic, um, it, it seems like to some extent anything will sell if it's in a can or, or even a bottle, but especially a can. Whereas, um, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, those same beers, some of these same beers, um, would be draft only in our pub and they'd sell really, really slowly. But now like, you know, I've never brewed a Scotch ale at Wolf's Ridge because like, I just knew it wouldn't sell. Um, but now we're talking about brewing one going into like mid to late spring, because like, if it's in a can, I'm pretty positive it's going to sell. So that's just really interesting. Um, and so we're seeing things like non barrel aged barley wine at our last bottle release sold really, really well. I, I sold out of, of cases. We thought someone would make it to market, um, to bottle shops around Columbus and none did because everyone bought it up. Um, and we've never sold that much barrel aged barley wine in a day, um, let alone non barrel aged. And so, um, that's awesome for me because I like brewing barley wine and the more, <laughs> more we brew it, the more we can barrel age as well. Um, so I don't, I hope that kind of trend continues, but we'll see like, as people start going back to bars, we might not see the package sell as easily. Um, and then we've just been having really great, really great success with like, they're not like true pastry stouts. They're not, um, they're not, you know, 15 Play-Doh gra- finishing gravity stouts, but, um, sweeter stouts with a, a bunch of chocolate in them. Um, we've they're almost like a brownies uh, theme to these beers. So we're um, coming up with ideas for a mixed four pack of those, um, that will probably be ready in a, a month and a half ish. So 
it'll be our first mix pack that we're going to sell commercially. So it's going to be a pain in the ass to do, but I think people will love it. So it'll, it's always worth it if people love it, I think. <laughs> Well, Chris, it's been really fun to talk to you about uh, how you uh, do creative things with your beers while also kind of maintaining this, uh, you know, flavorful, um, flavor forward through line through it. Um, before we end, G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Crisp Scottish pale ale malt is the workhorse of many a brewery. Get great quality and reliable supply from Old Orchard. Take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, consider our all new all access pro subscriptions that combine magazines with uh, exclusive online content and more. Um, for those of you who were interested in our uh, brewery workshop, New Brewery Accelerator, it is now sold out. And so uh, uh, we'll be doing another one in the fall. So stay tuned to that. And you can sign up at breweryworkshop.com for notification when that is around. Um, so Chris, if people want to learn more about Wolf's Ridge, find your beer, come taste it in person or find you on the internet. Uh, you know, where do they, uh, where do they find you? Yeah. Um, so we've got, uh, two Instagram pages, which is probably the best way. We're also on Facebook, but there's, um, I think it's Wolf's Ridge Brewing and Wolf's Ridge Beer. The Wolf's Ridge Beer is only beer focused. The Wolf's Ridge Brewing also includes all of our food restaurant side as well. Um, but uh, um, really great um, content there. And our website, wolfsridgebrewing.com. Um, if you're local, um, you can get uh, food delivered. Um, right now we're doing home delivery. Our, our own staff is doing it. So like we can take the full cut. We don't have to pay chow now or or uh, uh what's the name doordash, DoorDash and, and yeah uber eats, uber eats um, their their exorbitant fees um and uh if you're within the state of ohio um, most uh, regions of the state we're doing home delivery um in our own vans as well um we are a self-distributed brewery so like we can come to your doorstep still um it's a, been a huge part of our business um since the pandemic started uh, our restaurant and tap room are back open. Um, we've got a temporary patio as we never, we don't have any outdoor space at our current um, pub location downtown. Um, but the city has a temporary permit um, where we've taken over half of the, the street in the alley and uh, have tables set up uh, as of yesterday. So you can sit outside and as it warms up out there and uh, it was really successful last year. So it'd be probably the best place to grab uh, one of our beers and in, uh, in the short term anyway. So. Well, I hope as uh, everyone continues to get vaccinated and we move towards uh, you know some semblance of normality again, that uh, more and more of that on-premise enjoyment mm -hmm. and experience uh, you know becomes a thing for everybody. Chris, it's been great to talk to you about brewing. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Yeah, yeah cheers. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.